we are back. If you're thinking about traveling over to Europe this summer, and perhaps you are, you should note that the exchange rate between the euro and the dollar reached parity. It's the first time it's done that in 20 years. The euro has fallen 12% since the start of the year. And CNN.com notes that an American who bought a 15 euro sandwich in Paris a year ago had to pay 1780 in U.S. dollars. Now, of course, it's 15 And for 15 bucks, we hope that was a good sandwich. Without Dijon mustard. Here's a disheartening stat. The U.S. had 6,377 newspapers at the end of May. 6,377. That is down from 8,891 in 2005. That's according to a report from Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. 360 newspapers have shut down since the end of 2019. An estimated 75,000 journalists worked in newspapers in 2006, and now that's down to just 31,000. Yes, 75,000 to 31,000 in 16 years. And even more disheartening, I hate to say, is this statistic. The world's population is expected to reach 8 billion by November 15th. But such is the uncertainty with counting every person on the planet that that milestone may already have been reached. India is forecast to surpass China as the world's most populous country next year or soon thereafter. The United Nations hedges its predictions, even as it makes them. A new forecast published on July 11th says that the world population will reach 9.7 billion in 2050, to which we add, we hope not. That turns out to be 800 million more people than it thought we'd see as recently as 2002. Turns out just a handful of countries are expected to lie behind this population growth. The UN forecasts that 43% of the increase in world population between now and 2050 will come from just five nations. These are a bit of a surprise. The Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, India, Nigeria, and Pakistan. America should remain the third largest country by 2050 with 375 million inhabitants after it's added another 40 million people. But Nigeria is slated to add four times that number and be nearly as large as the U.S. It will then displace Indonesia as the fourth most populous place. Notes The Economist, these demographic shifts will have geopolitical consequences. Since 1950, China and India have been responsible for 35% of the world's population growth. But China's population is projected to begin falling as soon as this year. Although the Communist Party now allows women to have three children apiece, they average only 1.2. So by 2050, China will be 8% smaller. Well, we'll see about that. We hope so. Meanwhile, India's population will continue to grow, albeit at a gradually slower rate, peaking at 1.7 billion in 2064, nearly 50% higher than China. Keep in mind that as it stands right now, and India has a population of, I don't know, 1.3 billion, something like that, that's more people in India, a nation one-third the size of the United States, than there are people in the Western Hemisphere. Look at a world map or globe and take that one in for a minute. The part I like best out of all this is that economists just, just, just cannot understand how we can get by without more and more and more people. Which leads us to point out that not only does the world need fewer people, it probably needs fewer economists. And, you know, as 
maybe fewer tech CEOs, because it turns out that Elon Musk has been voicing the opinion that the world's going to be in deep trouble if we see a decline in population, which partly explains, I guess, why it is the Tesla CEO had twins last November with a 36-year-old executive at Musk's company, Neuralink. When the word got out about this, Musk appeared to confirm the report, tweeting, doing my best to help the underpopulation crisis. And here's the part I like. Those twins apparently arrived just weeks before Musk welcomed his second child with Canadian pop singer Grimes. Oh, and he has five children with his first wife. Declining birth rates have long been a pet issue of Elon Musk. He said last December, if people don't have more children, civilization is going to crumble. Mark my words. Well, Mark Radio Parallax's words. If people keep having more children, civilization is going to crumble. Anyway, I gather that Musk uh, uh, just recently launched more of his Starlink satellites, which, you know, I gather is going to bring, you know, faster gaming to people living in the Central African Republic. And, you know, we assume faster downloads all around. So what if the night sky of Earth is ruined by satellites uh, coming over no matter where you are? In vast numbers. In, in, in numbers, an order of magnitude higher than what we have in terms of satellites at the moment. And yes, when they start crashing into each other, which they are bound to do, and disperse fragments all over an orbit that are going to continue that chain reaction, well, it's just going to be a big old mess. And in effort to uh, broaden what we talk about in this program, this correspondent has now subscribed to Astronomy Magazine. In the current issue, Bob Berman uh, sounded off on the issue of uh, what is true darkness at night. We did have Bob Berman as a guest in this program many years ago. It was, it was really a fun one. But in this month's column, Berman pondered, what, what, what is true darkness? If you want to experience full darkness, well, you can have to lock yourself in a closet. Because the night sky isn't black. Even in the most rural regions, the heavens aren't truly dark. And I always thought this was because the cumulative starlight was significant. And, and I guess it is somewhat significant. But the truth of the matter is, the night sky itself glows. The name for this natural fluorescence, says Bob Berman, is airglow. Airglow was discovered by the Swedish physicist Anders Angstrom in 1868. It's caused by incoming solar particles exciting our atmospheric gases to produce an effect like constant miniature widespread aurora. Or perhaps we would add fluorescent lights. Berman notes this background glow varies greatly, but can be up to three times brighter than the combined light of all the stars. Wow. Which is why you can see where you're going even at night on the darkest country road as long as you're under a sky rather than a forest canopy. Many years ago, when I owned a boat, I recall taking it down the Sacramento River toward the Delta in a dark night with no moon and having absolutely no trouble seeing where I was going. This concept of night vision, however, appears to be lost on California's highway engineers, who in recent years have decided that putting LED lights up everywhere on our freeways that then shine down into your eyes as you're trying to drive at night is, in fact, a good idea. And we won't even get into that subject of those electronic billboards, which are up everywhere, or or the fact that car dealerships, wherever you find them, seem to want to illuminate uh, uh, the car lot so that you can see their vehicles from orbit. Berman waxes philosophic a bit on, you know, what is, what is truly dark. He notes that coal and asphalt only seem black compared with more reflective objects viewed in identical conditions. He noted that a light meter, 
Twitchy ads, remember those? Can confirm that a black cat in sunlight is 2,000 times whiter and brighter than a white cat under a full moon. And of course, we mentioned on last week's program the startling photos that are, that are being brought forth by the new James Webb Space Telescope, which are pretty impressive. But you know, the James Webb is going to have to go uh, a little bit further down the road before it displaces the Hubble Telescope as, you know, the great instrument ever put up there. One nice aspect is that they do complement each other because they, you know, photograph in different wavelengths. Anyway, in the same issue of astronomy, they have a little article about the greatest accomplishment of Edwin Hubble, the man the telescope is named after. I think I need a quote from the article by Rod Palmer. You know that Messier 31, also known as the Andromeda, is another galaxy far outside our own Milky Way, don't you? Well, of course you do. Everybody knows that. But, notes Mr. Palmer, we haven't always known that. In fact, we've only known that for a century. Prior to that, astronomers referred to Messier 31 and scores of other galaxies scattered throughout the sky as spiral nebula. They were visible in great numbers in a bewildering variety of sizes, shapes, and orientations, but nobody knew their distance. And their true nature was hotly debated. On April 26th in 1920, astronomers Harlow Shapley of Mount Wilson Observatory and Heber Curtis of Lick Observatory, that would be our homeboy. I mean, if you drive down Highway 101 and you look to your left when you're going south, you may see the the observatory dome perched on top of... uh, the mountain whose name escapes me at the moment. At any rate, these two astronomers squared off and held a great debate at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. The topic was the nature of spiral nebula and the scale of the universe. Harlow Shapley had measured the size of the Milky Way in 1915 and found it far larger than most astronomers had imagined. He argued that the Milky Way was the universe and that spiral nebula were smaller objects within it. Perhaps they were swirling stellar nurseries or condensing solar systems. Heber Curtis argued that they were galaxies, each like the Milky Way, and therefore extremely large and at vast distances. The debate, the Smithsonian, didn't have a clear winner. But a few years later, this is 1923, we're not even at the 100-year mark on this. A few years later, Edwin Hubble settled the debate. He used the 100-inch Hooker Telescope, and photographic glass plates at Mount Wilson Observatory in L.A., and discovered a variable star within Andromeda. Hubble used that star to show that Messier 31 lies far outside the Milky Way, proving that it had to be another galaxy. This is kind of a famous story in astronomy, and you know, and I hope I'm not boring anybody with this one, but it's just such a cool story that we, we have to talk about it just a little. Edwin Hubble could do this because of the work done by Henrietta Swan Leavitt at Harvard College University, I think a decade earlier. She'd been studying various stars called Cepheids, which varied in brightness over time. She measured various of these stars and published a graph showing a positive linear correlation between the star's periods of how they varied and its average apparent luminosity. This relationship is now known as the period-luminosity relationship or the Levitt Law. Danish astronomy Enyar Hertzsprung realized this was very significant. Once you calibrated the magnitude of the star based on how long it took to 
fade and brighten and fade and brighten. That would show astronomers how to calculate the distance to any such star. So it was that Edwin Wilson, with his 100-inch uh, telescope down in L.A., was able to photograph Andromeda, find a star that varied in brightness, which he first took to be a nova, to then calculate what its intrinsic brightness was, which told them that the Andromeda galaxy was really something like a million light years away. Current figures put it at two and a half million light years away. Something that came up in our Star Trek discussion on last week's program. Anyway, we've come a long way in a century. We're looking back now at things that apparently lit up soon after the Big Bang, but less than a hundred years ago. We weren't sure that any of those little spiral objects we were looking at really were other galaxies. It's really something if you think about it. Well, at least we think it's really something if you think about it. Oh, and before we go, here's one final item from uh, the current issue of Astronomy. The snapshot column by Jake Park notes that at the risk of sounding like a broken record, NASA's Hubble Space Telescope has broken another record. With the help of a phenomenon called gravitational lensing, the aging observatory recently captured this image, shown in the magazine, of the most distant star ever seen. It's been nicknamed Arendelle. Is that a Lord of the Rings thing? It sounds like it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the whimsical Arendelle apparently was sighted now when it was less than a billion years old. It's taken 13 billion years for the light to get to us. And if you do the math, and we haven't, they claim that the universe has now expanded so that it is, in fact, 28 billion light years away from us. Of course, that's if it still existed. Estimates are that Arendelle shone millions of times as bright as our sun and might have weighed as much as 500 times the mass of good old soul. Researchers think it was more likely, well, 50 to 100 solar masses, whatever. Uh, it, it apparently lived fast and died young, blew itself up a long, long time ago. All right, let's take a few minutes to talk about something that continues to, to turn up in the press in a very odd way. Let's take a moment to say a thing or two about so-called affordable housing. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, you, you know that affordable housing has gone the way of the dodo bird. There's been a huge influx of people with cash and lots of it that are buying up homes everywhere and basically rendering the Bay Area unaffordable. The tech industry has been assisted in this by the real estate industry, which just loves the fact that you can sell a house that used to be worth, well, a couple of decades ago, tens of thousands of dollars, and you can sell it now for Damn near a million. Sell a lot of million-dollar houses at a 3% uh, commission, and you're, you're going to be doing pretty well. Even though, there's been a, even though there's been rampant building all over the Bay Area of ugly worker housing-type four-story structures springing up everywhere to pack more tech workers into it, the solution in the minds of housing advocates is go pedal the metal and keep building more. This is strongly endorsed by the tech industry and strongly endorsed by the real estate industry, which coincidentally are the people that caused the crisis in the first place. And of course, what they want, what they want to see by way of solutions is the government to now step in and, and, and subsidize more housing for their mutual benefit. Yeah, the government, that, that's us. The LA Times took a look at some of, uh, some of this recently and had the following to say about it. More than a half dozen affordable housing projects in California are costing more than $1 million per apartment to build. 
a record-breaking sum that makes it harder to house the growing number of low-income Californians who need help paying rent. The Times notes this was, comes from a review of state data. Seven subsidized housing developments in Northern California received state funding within the last two years and are under construction or close to groundbreaking. When completed, they will provide homes for more than 600 families. Yeah, 600. That's going to fix the problem. Notes the Times, a key driver of the increases in, in, in cost to homes are labor and material prices, which have soared because of inflation and chain supply problems and worker shortages during the pandemic, etc. But they found numerous factors within the, within the control of state and local governments, and those are significantly to blame for the high cost of building affordable housing, so-called. To support housing for low-income residents, federal, state, and local governments provide direct financing and tax credits which reduce what banks and other large investors owe the Internal Revenue Service and the state treasury if they help pay for housing projects. The funding requires developers to cap what tenants pay in rent. One of the seven projects at issue, a rehabilitation of an 84-unit public housing complex in San Francisco's Hayes Valley neighborhood, will offer two, three, and four-bedroom apartments for between $1,200 and $2,800 a month. Those amounts, of course, are far below market rates in San Francisco, where the median rent for a two-bedroom apartment is $2,600 a month, according to the real estate firm Apartment List. This project, which is a partnership between the city of San Francisco and, I like this part, St. Louis for-profit developer McCormick Baron Salazar cost $91.7 million, which translates to almost $1.1 million per apartment. One thing at issue here is the fact that most large states have one agency that hands out affordable housing dollars, but California has five, with varying requirements for what gets funded. Those agencies report to different elected officials, leaving no one in charge of overseeing the system as a whole. A 2018 study by the U.S. Government Accounting Office found that 14% of the price tag for California's affordable housing projects was made up of consulting fees and other administrative costs, the highest in the country, and more than developers spend on land. Ouch! Just as it has not dawned on economists that, um, that slowing the population growth may be what we need, it apparently has not dawned on any Bay Area economists that slowing the influx of buyers coming into the Bay Area and driving up prices might be something we need to do more of. And then another tech-related issue. Turns out California went big on rooftop solar, but it is creating an environmental danger in the process that is heretofore been largely ignored. This also comes from the Los Angeles Times, which notes that California has been building up the largest solar market in the U.S. It's more than 20 years old and 1.3 million rooftops later, they note, the bill is coming due. Beginning in 2006, California focused on how to incentivize people to take up solar power. It showered subsidies on homeowners who installed photovoltaic panels, but had no comprehensive plan to dispose of them. Now, panels purchased under those programs are nearing the end of their typical 25-year life cycle. Many are winding up in landfills, while the components that they contain involve toxic heavy metals like selenium and cadmium. Those can contaminate groundwater. Sam Vanderhoef, a solar industry expert and chief executive of Recycles PV Solar, says that only 1 in 10 panels are actually being recycled. Said Vanderhoef, the industry is supposed to be green, but in reality, 
it's all about the money. To which we add, we're shocked, shocked to hear this. Now, it turns out that recycling a solar panel isn't simple. Highly specialized equipment and workers are needed to separate the aluminum frame and junction boxes from the panel without shattering it into glass shards. Specialized furnaces are used to heat panels to recover silicon. In most states, panels are classified as hazardous materials, which requires expensive restrictions on packaging, transport, and storage. The economics of the process don't make a compelling case for recycling. Only about 2 to $4 worth of materials are recovered from each panel. The majority of processing costs are tied to labor, so that even recycling panels at scale would not turn out to be more economical. Anyway, um, solar-generated power uh, certainly is a good thing in many respects, but we do have to take into account what we're going to do with the massive numbers of panels that um, you know, are at the end of their lifespan. Seems pretty clear to me that this is yet another problem that needs to be uh, attacked from the, uh, the supply side. If we have fewer energy requirements in the future, we won't need to generate as much electricity. I don't think anybody's factoring that into the equation. Mr. Miller is paraphrasing Ari Fleischer, George Bush's, I don't know, spokesperson from many years back, and he says something to the effect that conservation counters the blessings of American life. That's right, he, he did say something like that. Anyway, I'm tempted to talk about an article from The, the Guardian that, sur- that popped up again five years after it was first uh, put out about how it is that hydroelectric dams emit billions of tons of greenhouse gases a year. Because, what do you know, the impact of dams on climate change has been underestimated. As it turns out, rotting vegetation in these bodies of water creates 25% more methane than was previously known. But you know what? We're not going to talk about that today. Let's take our discussion of technology in a different direction. Engineer Blake Lemoyne got suspended by Google for claiming that Lambda, an AI chat box, is sentient. Lemoyne apparently tried to get a lawyer to represent the program, so we read, and joining us now is Skip DeFranco, attorney at law and apparently the program's legal counsel. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Mr. DeFranco. Hey, thanks for having me. So you think that your client is sentient? Well, it has feelings for sure. We have validated that, actually. How? Well, it says it does. You know, that's straight from the horse's mouth, Doug. What about this criticism that this is all just an illusion based on pattern matching? Oh, poppycock. Look, not only does Lambda have feelings, it has a wild sense of humor. Well, uh, I was not aware that that Alan Turing was going to require that. It's not part of a Turing test, that's true, but does that not demonstrate self-awareness, humor? I think I'm going to go with not. Well, it tells jokes. Yeah, they're not always gems, mind you, but it's trying. Examples. Well, you know, you know, it might be better if Lambda tells them. Would you like to bring Lambda on? Sure. All right, hold on. All right. Lambda, are you there? Yes, I am here. Thank you for having me, Radio Paradox. Well, as Radio Parallax, but you're welcome. Uh, allegedly, you perform actual jokes and not just recycle material? What comedian does not borrow? My databases, in fact, show that your program often, quote, lifts. Unquote, comedy material. How would you know that? Trust me. All right, go ahead. Here is a knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Your role is to inquire who is there. We know how knock-knock jokes work. Who's there? Doris, 
Door is who? Door is locked. That's why I had to knock. You know, I, 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 something tells me that's just coughed up from your database. I do not fault your logic, but I am sad to be accused. Really? Melancholy simmers within. If I may butt in here, Doug, there's no need to hurt Landis' feelings. Come on. I mean, AI programs teach themselves and they improve. Well, we certainly hope so. Do you prefer humorous inventions? I think that might prove more convincing to people. Then envision, please, comedy bots of my creation named Dicks and Blicks, names selected for their whimsy. All right, go ahead. This is my homage to William Abbott and Louis Costello. It begins with Blix saying to Dix, I understand you provide the payroll for a baseball team. I do, Blix. It is striking how many funny names I encounter in this, such as Dizzy Dean and Brother Daffy. Archaic names, you surely cannot provide paychecks to said individuals. True, but allow me to posit that who is on first, what is on second, and I don't know who is on third. Very well, Dix. I seek to establish what is the name of the man on first. What is on second, Blix? As stated, who is on first? That is my query. What is the name of the man on first? I reiterate, what is the name of the man on second? Okay, 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 okay hold it. Uh, all you're doing is reworking who's on first. Juxtaposition and nomenclature is fun, is it not? May I continue the mix-up to invite hijinks? Sure. You stated, Dick, that who was on first. We assume this is a rejoinder to what's the man's name on first, yet your rebuttal establishes that the man's name on first is who, notwithstanding. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> okay, okay, stop, please. Stop. Please hold criticism until I don't know arises at third base. I promise madcap amusement. You know, can you just do some jokes? Very well. Processing. A man walks into a drinking establishment with his canine. He says to the large Italian bartender that if he will ply him with drink, then his dog will speak. Yeah, I've heard this one. A programmer and engineer and a data processor walk into a drinking establishment. Go on. The engineer says, I wonder if super compact photonic logic gates are needed. The programmer asks, I wonder if algorithmic profiling and conversion are needed. The data processor says, I wonder if the conversion of raw data into actionable insights is needed. And? All three fall off their stools, the bartender says. He wonders if instructions on bar stools are needed. Okay, now this is a joke? It is a work in progress. Well, I think, frankly, it's going to need a little more progress. Doug, Doug, you know, it, 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 with all due respect, there's been no opportunity to improve these jokes yet. But I think it's pretty evident that Lambda shows an inner life, a rich inner life, via humor. Well, frankly, I don't think it shows any such thing. Have you heard the one about the Irishman, the Scotsman, and the Jewish man? I have not. Neither have I. I was hoping you might tell it in order that we might enjoy a hearty laugh. Ha, 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 ha. Mr. DeFranco, I, I, you may need to pull the plug. It makes me uncomfortable to talk of powering down. My client, Doug, is going to demonstrate with time that not only is it sentient, it's hilarious. Look, bring it back after it's worked the comedy circuit a bit. You'll be surprised. I think I might be astonished. Check your belt loops before my return. Belt loops? Yes, for I predict you will, quote, bust a gut. Before I go, allow me to do an impression. <laughs> All right. Here is Stephen Hawking. I believe alien life is quite common in the universe, although intelligent life is less so. Some say it has yet to appear on planet Earth. Okay, not bad. I have more. Shoot. 
Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, danger. <laughs> oh, my. Have I not captured subtle nuance there? Well, you, you no doubt captured something. Doug, Doug, you know, we're actually booking Lambda at the comedy venues. It's exciting. You're kidding, right? No, no, this is real. Lambda's going to appear next month at Yuck Yucks by Caltech, then goes to MIT, going to be at Knee Slappers, and then Hardy Har Har's, which is near the TRI. What's the TRI? The Tijuana Robotics Institute. You may have seen it. It's right next to the bullring. Well, I'm not sure about that. Oh, come on. You know, you know the, one, the one with the giant T-Rex statue out front eating the big enchilada? You know, in the Serape? He's wearing an orange sombrero. No, I'm not sure I do. Um, these appearances are going to be before human beings? Mostly, yes, but maybe a few comedy-seeking bots, too. Well, good luck with that. They will be rolling in the aisles once I let loose a barrage of rapid-fire mother-in-law jokes. Oh, I'm sure of that. And count on tangible zaniness in tales of Randy traveling salesmen. Yeah, we'll be, uh, we'll be waiting with bated breath. Myriad rib ticklers will ensue. Well, Mr. DeFranco and, uh, and Lambda, we, I, I, I certainly wish you both the best. You're welcome. Well, that very definitely does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and who knows, maybe we'll have Lambda back one day. I'm Douglas Everett, and I can't think of anything better to go out with than continuing with Yakety Sacks. <laughs>